People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. I'm very excited today. We have a special guest, uh, Dr. Peter Laird, and not too many times do I get to um, meet physicians who actually are in the same boat as many of us listening, as well as myself. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lori. It's great to be here. You've been a physician now for over 18 years, yes. and you've been diagnosed with kidney disease. Tell us a little bit about when you learned you had kidney disease, and, and what was that like, being a physician and understanding some of the issues that were right in front of you? Well, it's it's very traumatic, as, as I'm sure uh, you know from yourself and uh, many others that you've interviewed. Uh, it was in 1998, I was uh, applying for... Uh, life insurance and I got a notice of rejection back from the life insurance company and of course they don't tell you what the rejection is for so I had to call them up and uh, then sign some forms and then they eventually sent me uh, my lab work and the reason why they had rejected me and it turned out that there was protein in my urine and being a physician the first thing I did was so man is there really protein in my urine so I went and did my own urinalysis and not only was there protein in my urine but there was also blood in my urine, which uh, oh, wow. w- was really uh, very, very uh, difficult, uh, you know, to sit there and look and say, no, it's not just protein; it's protein and blood, and that usually doesn't uh, mean anything good at all when you're when you're looking at kidney disease, which which I readily knew and what, as what a physician. What is the diagnosis for that um, when you have blood and protein in your urine? Is it a specific illness? Well, what it turned out for me uh, after uh, consultation with uh, my nephrologist. Uh, his his initial impression was that it was most likely IgA nephropathy, and uh, that was that was actually confirmed uh, seven years into my disease in 2005 when I did my renal biopsy uh, that it, that it was IgA uh, nephropathy, a very common uh, form of kidney disease. Uh, fortunately, for most uh, patients, they don't progress on to end stage renal disease. And that was my initial hope that since I, when I was diagnosed, my creatinine was completely normal, uh, that I'd just be like so many of the other patients that I'd seen. I'd seen a few, uh, not, not more than a handful of patients over, over my years that had IgA nephropathy. And, you know, they had a completely normal life, completely normal kidney values. And that was my expectation. Uh, but it didn't turn out that way. Did you have high blood pressure, or diabetes, or anything that, that helps no other, push that forward? Absolutely no other comorbid diseases. Because uh, you're IgA young, you're very young. I mean, for you know, you think, wow, a young physician who basically has the world at their feet, and they find out that they have kidney disease. What was the first thing that you did? Did you research the options? Did you decide to hook up with other patients or just kind of revert to try to understand what was happening? Well, with IgA nephropathy, when I was diagnosed in 1998, uh, there really wasn't any treatment for it except to control blood pressure, use uh, ACE inhibitors to reduce the proteinuria, and uh, to consider fish oil. 
Uh, and I don't know if you've ever taken fish oil, but fish oil is just not a fun thing to take. I have uh, you, taken you, it. <laughs> you, you, you take it, and it stays with you the whole day long. That was really the only option. It wasn't until later uh, that some studies came out around 2004, 2005, uh, showing that very high-dose steroid uh, could you know, prevent uh, people going on to develop uh, the need for dialysis and renal replacement therapy. Uh, but by the time those studies come out, uh, the cat was already out of the out of the bag, so to speak. Uh, my uh, creatinine had uh, become elevated to the point that it really wouldn't have been uh, useful for me to do it at that point. My uh, creatinine was already too high. What was your creatinine level when you were diagnosed or your GFR level, and how quickly did it progress to needing dialysis? It progressed over about a 10-year period of time, uh, nine years. Uh, in 1998, when I was first diagnosed, my creatinine was 1.0. Uh, the next year is 1.1. About three years later, it went up to 1.5, and that's when I first started to get the uh, hints that this wouldn't just be the usual run-of-the-mill IgA nephropathy that I'd been exposed to. Then in 2005, my creatinine went up to... 2.1, and that's when I decided to go ahead and, for documentation purposes, uh, and confirm the diagnosis that it really was IgA nephropathy. Basically, you knew kidney failure was pending. What did you do next to, to find out about your options? I, I was fortunate to be with a medical group that has many excellent physicians in tertiary care centers as well as primary care. Uh, so I went ahead when I recognized that it, that it was going to progress on to end-stage renal disease Eventually, I went ahead and uh, got a consultation with uh, the professor that happened to train my, uh, Dr. Philip Tuso is, is my nephrologist, and his professor, Dr. Gene Kajubo at Kaiser Sunset, uh, had also been a UCLA professor. Uh, he got me a consult uh, with Dr. Kajubu, and uh, that's when we talked about the uh, steroid option, which really, I, I'd gone past the, the point where that, that would really be beneficial to me. At that meeting, he uh, discussed transplant, of course, but he also talked to me the first time about buttonholes and uh, home dialysis option. My initial response to home dialysis was based upon my, my tainted view from uh, internal medicine where we had uh, been exposed only really to dialysis patients that were in the intensive care unit that had come in and uh, doing very poorly. So when he first started talking to me about doing home dialysis, my initial response was, that is crazy. Why would anybody want to do dialysis at home? Because my impression was dialysis patients were always crashing and burning, going to the ER, calling 911. And I really didn't think that that was you know, something that anybody could really do at home safely. But to my great surprise, uh, you can do it very safely at home. How long did it take you to go from in-center to home? I mean, was it a progression, or did you immediately know you wanted to go home once you started dialysis? As soon as I uh, decided between transplant and uh, dialysis as, as the option, it was always my, my goal uh, to do home dialysis at home. I started February of uh, 2007 in-center. It was three months before I was able to get hooked up with a buttonhole, establishing a buttonhole, and fortunately I had a, just an incredible technician that happened to be my patient before I became her patient. That is so strange, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. What was that like? What was that relationship like? And and explain to the audience what a buttonhole is, because I think this is critical to yes. patient survival. I had just a fantastic uh, tech that was just able to stick anybody uh, anywhere. She was always the go-to person. If somebody had a difficult stick, they would always go and call her. And, and I worked with Kaiser Health Foundation, and her name was Crystal Kaiser. She 
uh, was able to not only stick me well, but uh, something that a lot of people experience in dialysis. She was able to pull the needle out without me even feeling it. And yeah. after, after experiencing uh, uh, for a couple months other technicians pulling it out and always hurting every single time, it, it was just a very amazing thing to me that it actually didn't hurt. And she simply said to me, well, it's not supposed to hurt. You take it out the same angle, same way, and you don't press it on it before it comes out. And she taught me the technique that I use today as far as taping the, uh, the buttonhole. Now, the buttonhole uh, is something that, again, Dr. Kajubo spoke to me about. And it's actually been around, developed in Europe. It's been used extensively. It's not a new procedure at all. It's been used extensively in Seattle uh, here in the United States uh, for 30 or 40 years. And all it is, is it's like uh, an earring hole uh, where you go into the same hole over and over and over again. You develop a track and scar tissue uh, so that you can then uh, canalize using a blunt uh, needle, uh, which helps prevent other complications. The very interesting thing about the uh, buttonhole technique is if it's done correctly and if it's done early in the uh, time that the fistula is matured, uh, there is 0% aneurysm formation, and th that's exactly what I've got uh, with mine as well, too. Well, your fistula is one of the prettiest fistulas I've ever seen. Well, thank you, Lori. <laughs> you said that in front of my wife. So. I know. It's it's absolute, It doesn't have any you know bumps on it. It's very smooth, and it's inspiring because we all of us need accesses or some kind of you know way to access our bloodstream. And you know when you get you know, these aneurysms, I had aneurysms on my access, and you know it's frightening to see your body change like that. Very so, much so. Very yeah. Much so. so it gives you, it gives me hope. Hope that you know the fistulas can look decent. <laughs> uh, absolutely, but but the key to uh, keeping your fistula decent is self cannulation. You mm. you have to get over the fear, and uh, I've never liked needles, even though I've uh, spent my whole adult life essentially sticking needles in other people. When it goes to sticking needles in yourself, that's a very different. It, it, it's really a mind over matter thing that you have to overcome the fear of sticking your own needles. But it's absolutely essential if you want to have good fistula health to learn how to do that uh, because uh, there are uh, technicians that, that do very well in sticking and then there's others that unfortunately don't and uh, you can't always depend on you know the good sticker you know being there when you need it you know when you know your own body it's easier to you know, cannulate yourself. But I understand the fear because the first time I had to give myself an EPO shot, you know, it's just not normal to stick a needle in your body. No, it's not. And you have to overcome it. So one of the things I wanted to know is you didn't go for transplant as an option. Um, can you share a little bit why? When I was in medical school, I developed a testicular cancer and I had radiation therapy. Uh, fortunately, it was very early uh, with very excellent prognosis. Uh, but with the uh, uh, radiation therapy, that does put me at increased risk of uh, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, and uh, gastric cancer as well, too. Uh, so understanding all these and, and trying to avoid radiation when it, whenever somebody would want to offer me even dental x-rays, you know, I, I would always hesitate at that. Uh, I've always been very sensitive to the cancer risk, you know, coming up with that. A month after I started dialysis, as part of my routine uh, evaluation for transplant, I uh, asked my doctor actually to send me there, you know, because I knew I had a lot of moles. I'd been uh, out in the uh, sun uh, when I was a teenager, and uh, my mother uh, lived in Cape Cod, so we, we would spend the summers out in the sun, and uh, I knew I had a lot of uh, moles, and I asked him to send me over and make a consult. Well, when I did that, they found that I uh, actually had a very superficial melanoma 
uh, that was taken off one month after I started uh, dialysis. And that just made me very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I, I'd already had two cancers. I already had a further risk with uh, radiation therapy, further risk with multiple CAT scans over the years. That All the cumulative risk, I, I just had no comfort level uh, with uh, the, the potential. And it's, it's not an absolute contraindication. But then the more I found out about uh, many of the studies ongoing and uh, subsequently uh, showing that with, with excellent hemodialysis, especially uh, nocturnal and daily frequent uh, dialysis of longer duration, uh, you, you can actually have the same survival as cadaveric transplant. Uh, that, that gives you a lot of on. hope. It, give, it gives you a lot of hope. Well, what's it like being a physician, taking care of patients, and now becoming the patient? Um, you are basically like William Hurt in the movie The Doctor. <laughs> what has the, the perspective <clears throat> been as being the one who needs the care? What has it been like for you? I, I would say it's it's been very difficult in in the sense that having the responsibility of taking care of other patients and then going into the position where you're completely dependent upon the technicians, especially early on as you're learning the dialysis, what to expect with dialysis, how to do the dialysis, what settings work best for you. Uh, it, it's very disconcerting. Uh, fortunately, again, I, I had just a fantastic technician, Crystal Kaiser, that uh, was able to push me to the point where I would, I would be able to progress, but not faster than, than I was uh, capable of doing it. So for the first three months, I, I was in very good hands. Uh, but over time, as I started to try to develop my own independence, uh, I, I think one of the difficulties of being uh, in a dialysis unit is there, there is a dynamic uh, between uh, being uh, independent and the uh, technicians allowing you to be independent. There's uh, actually a, somewhat of an adverse. It's very parental, isn't it? Absolutely. We'll tell absolutely. you what to do. And uh, th that was the most difficult part of, of being a physician. And, and especially the part that bothered me the most, and my wife would agree with this, is recognizing the importance of hand washing. There's some that do very well at it, some that are, that are just, it's ingrained. Every, every step they do is, is in perfect synchrony. They, they wash their hands when they need to. They change the gloves when they need to. And then there's other technicians that unfortunately uh, absolutely defy all, all of the hygiene standards. And it, that was the single biggest thing uh, in, in the two years I was in center that came up more than once. Would you call the healthcare professionals on it? Because it's pretty intimidating to be <clears throat> sitting in a chair and say, did you wash your hands? I, mean, I, I called him on it in two episodes and just really got the entire units uh, just very upset with me uh, just because I asked them to wash their hands. And it, it's a very sad state of affairs. I've dialyzed in six states in seven different units, and I've observed this in every single unit. No matter how excellent the unit is, I've observed that there's just some of the technicians, some of the nurses, even some of the doctors, uh, I can't exclude mm -hmm. my own profession, that just don't wash their hands. And it's, if you're understanding the importance of this, and, right. and, the, and the, the fact is I've taken care of so many dialysis patients that were septic, and part of the reason why they were septic was hygiene issues. And I, I just knew it was a very important thing. And the thing that really bothered me in that was I was worried that the whole time I was in center that I would end up developing hepatitis C, which is a very difficult virus to treat. That was the thing. My wife would absolutely, she's probably shaking her head, concurring that that, that was uh, the absolute biggest uh, menace that I noticed. And, and it was an ongoing issue. No matter how excellent the unit was, there was just some 
of the technicians that even if you spoke to them about it, they still didn't get it and they still didn't change their habits. Wow, and that's Med School 101, washing your hands. So we really have to go back to basics and that's one of the good things about being on home dialysis, you're in control of your Absolutely. environment and that makes a big difference. It, may, it makes a, an amazing difference, and especially for me, where where I, where I was one of those rare doctors that actually did make a habit, a deliberate habit of washing my hands, and part of that was self-protection. I didn't want to be bringing uh, different things home to my own family. So tell us a little bit about now you've been on home hemo for how long, and how did it impact your life from changing from in-center to being at home? In many ways, uh, since I've been around the medical field, and it, it's not an issue that bothers me, I, I would have to say it's been more of an impact on my wife in many ways. She used to just drop me off at the unit, go out shopping, spend my money, and uh, come home, and then, then pick me up. So her, her day was much more free. Uh, and uh, if anybody is considering going home, uh, the, the family is, is a very important part of that because it will change the dynamics. It, it, it is a big change you know, to the family situation. Uh, especially since my wife, she doesn't have the medical background that I do, and it still makes her nervous about everything. She's always asking me, are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, pretty much the same mindset I had several years ago, but that's crazy. How can you do dialysis at home? You being a physician, are you more of the physician at home or more of the patient at home? Oh, that, that's been the most terrible part of the transformation. <laughs> I, I always was very independent, and now uh, with, with uh, me sitting uh, tied up to a machine, literally, uh, I've actually learned a new way of talking to my wife. It's something I never said to her before. I say, yes, dear, all the time. And it, it's been... As a captive audience, now you can't go anywhere. <laughs> absolutely. I, I don't have any choice but to say, yes, dear, very frequently. Uh, and in, instead of, don't tell me what to do, it's become, yes, dear. So that's that's been the biggest transformation for me. Uh, uh, but, but again, I, I would say the transformation you know, from uh, my point of view, I, I've been used to sitting in the chair for four hours in center, just three days a week. Now I'm doing it five days a week for four hours. The, uh, the issue, I think, has is, is been, been more difficult for my wife than for myself. Well, have you seen an improvement in your overall health? Are you feeling better with more dialysis? The, the, the first thing I noticed uh, within the first week was I was sleeping better. Uh, not perfectly, but, but much better. And my Monday uh, evening headaches after the long weekend uh, pretty much have disappeared. Uh, I've only had an occasional headache uh, in the three months that I've been on uh, home hemodialysis with a frequency. And that was one of the things I was looking forward to because I, I knew that that was a very significant potential of reducing the, the Monday uh, evening headaches that, that sometimes were just so horrific that you know, nothing, nothing would help with them. I mean, I'd end up taking a shower two or three times a night just so the hot water could pour on my, on my, yeah. on my face to, you know, to help with the headaches, which, you know, of course, then uh, woke up my wife as well, too. So, uh, and, and when you don't feel well, it just impacts your family as well. So just having kidney disease impacts your family. Um, we really do rely on our support system. That's true. You know, because it, it is. It's, uh, I've been living with this for over 40 years now, and I'm lucky to have family support. And I see your wife here is very supportive. But one of the things I'm really interested in is as a patient observing the community, as a physician, what are some of the things that you want the community to do to change? I mean, I know one of you talked about not being so parental, helping engage the patients, but what are some of the things that you think would be important for the renal community to understand? There's a real dichotomy when, when you look at the medical literature for kidney disease. Uh, 
I just have the feeling that American nephrologists in general, forgive me for being uh, so hard on my American nephrology colleagues, uh, but we've been stuck with uh, the KTV as a standard of adequacy, and the whole concept of optimal dialysis here in America has been very slow to take. And I understand that Dr. Belding Scribner spent the last 20 years of his life fighting against the commercialization of dialysis units and the bottom line being, you know, how fast can we do this? How quickly can we do this? How much money can we make off EPO and other things like that? Which unfortunately is reality of, of the last 20 to 30 years of uh, American dialysis. Whereas other nations uh, such as France and uh, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, have uh, understood that longer, slower, gentler dialysis greatly increases and improves and saves uh, patients' lives. And, and that, that's really been my biggest calling the last two years, uh, as soon as I found out that longer and more frequent dialysis could impact uh, the mortality to the point of it being equivalent to a cadaveric transplant. I thought, well, why aren't we doing this? It, it's such an easy fix as far as medically uh, but there's a whole culture uh, that, that goes not only with the government, not only with uh, the dialysis nurses, but with the uh, American dialysis nephrologist, who are the only ones that are responsible for writing and prescribing dialysis care here in America. They have the most accountability, as far as in my own opinion. Uh, and this is such an amazing technology that you can take an organ and let it completely fail. There is no other organ that I could think of that, that could completely fail that's so essential to life. If, if the heart is completely gone without a transplant, you're going to die. If, if the brain completely fails, you're going to die. If the lungs completely fail, you're going to die without a transplant. But here we have a technology where with, with, with more frequent and longer duration, you can get the equivalent of a transplant with, with a fairly simple machine. I, I'm just very saddened, uh, personally, that American nephrologists haven't caught on to optimal, the concept of optimal dialysis. Now, there has been, of course, the Harvard letter a few months ago, which was, was a very brave interjection into this, into this whole debate for Harvard uh, physicians to come out in, in support as, as much as they have, which I, I know you're familiar with. Is that that was just a very welcome step, and hopefully uh, my American nephrology colleagues uh, would would take you know root with the concept that with more frequent and longer duration dialysis, we can significantly impact uh, a medical treatment to the point of sixty to seventy percent improved survival. Well, one of the arguments is uh, with that is that the patients don't want more dialysis, and I think many patients that I encounter are very depressed on dialysis. And it's just a vicious cycle because when you don't feel well, you become depressed because you have no control and then you don't have the energy to do what you need to do to live well. So would you agree with that? Um, depression basically becomes part of your life when you don't feel well. So many patients throughout the country are depressed. So how do we engage these patients to push their providers to have more dialysis or to go home where they can get more dialysis and, and they don't invade on the staff time that a, a facility you know, manages their whole team by? I don't, I don't believe that home dialysis has been an option that's been offered uh, which with uh, very much enthusiasm until just recently. You know, looking at it from the perspective of the nephrologist who is responsible for prescribing uh, the medical treatment, uh, I, I think there has to be a capacity uh, 
starting with them. And, and again, it is a very difficult issue. Going home and doing the number of hours of dialysis that, that I'm doing, uh, it, it, it's not an easy thing. But I recognize that if I'm going to use this as my primary treatment option, uh, then uh, that's the way it's going to have to be. Yeah, PD was uh, my savior for nine years, being on home dialysis. I don't know if I would have had a chronically happy attitude being on in-center dialysis for 12 years. No, it's very difficult. <laughs> Even Now, the dialysis center that I was dialyzing in is, is just an absolutely fantastic uh, center. That When the initial started, the uh, center, I believe, was seven years ago. Uh, its uh, survival rate was 80% with a 20% mortality. Uh, they've now uh, in, improved uh, with some very actually simple uh, techniques to 7% in uh, 2008, which is uh, even better than you know the national average that Japan gets as a nation. Uh, so in-center dialysis uh, can be done very well, uh, but there again, on the other hand, three days a week dialysis is just not as good as home doing five or six or more treatments a week. So to wrap this up a little bit for the people listening out there, if you're on in-center dialysis or you're a healthcare professional listening to the show, what are a couple of things that they can do right now to help either themselves or their patients? Well, in-center, there's actually uh, some very simple things. Instead of having the three hours very fast, very hard, very violent, uh, dialysis where there's intradialytic hypotension that happens very often with cramping and nausea associated with it. No wonder people are depressed. If, if you're going to come in, you're going to get severe cramping, you're going to be nauseous, and you're going to be tilted back in Trendelenburg with people rushing over you and, and pouring fluids into you on a frequent basis. Uh, this, this is the, the way that many uh, people uh, have in-center dialysis. More of an American phenomenon because, again, uh, Europe and uh, Australia and Japan understand that longer and uh, slower and less intensive episodes are much better. The, the bottom line is, is there's only so fast that the uh, third space fluids can go into the intravascular compartment. There's, there's a rate, and it's rate limiting, and if you exceed that rate limit, you're going to induce nausea, you're going to induce cramping, and you're going to induce... Uh, intradialytic hypotension. The blood pressure is just going to drop. Blood volume monitoring. That's why I'm such a fan of it. <laughs> yes, the crit line. <laughs> I know. Yes. I, I understand. You know, I used to cramp and crash, and until I understood this discussion, and for many people who may not understand third space and blood volume, your body goes through an amazing transition in three or four hours of dialysis and two hours, three hours. And when you drink this fluid, your body, you know, the machine has to pull it off and it's relentless. It doesn't know when to stop until you cramp or crash. And that vicious cycle, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, of, of that happening to your body takes a toll. And I think Absolutely. that's why, you know, so many people don't have any control over their life because they don't know if they're going to feel well. And that used to be something that I would say a lot. Like, I don't know how I'm going to feel. I don't know if I can go to a party. I don't know if I'm going to be able to show up for work. And that's a frustrating concept, and it it needs to change. So I agree with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but there are uh, probably the, the, the most important thing is to assure that there, there's a standard of four hours per dialysis for every patient, unless there's some reason that they can't do four hours, if there's some compelling reason. Uh, but uh, all the literature uh, has supported that the more dialysis you get, the better you're going to feel. 
and the longer you're going to live. And also for the patients out there, don't shorten your time because I hear that all the time. Like patients like, I want to get off early. You know, don't get off the machine early because of the fact that it impacts your health. And if you're getting three hours and you take off 15 minutes, I mean, you're just hurting yourself. Again, there, there's many different treatment options with uh, renal replacement therapies. Uh, if, if there was more uh, kidneys available, that would, of course, be, you know, the number one. You know, if everybody had an identical twin, that, that would be the ideal renal replacement therapy. But uh, that's obviously not the uh, choice that we have. Uh, there, there's... Uh, once you have kidney disease, there's many renal replacement therapies, but there's no cure uh, for kidney disease, even with a transplant. You're trading one set of circumstances for a different set of circumstances. As good as a transplant is, there's still uh, potential side effects, still potential risk associated with it. Uh, so there's, there's no one right option for every single person. I, I think that fortunately uh, we're 40 years uh, out of the pioneer days of uh, dialysis, and there, there's many options. So uh, for some people, nocturnal home hemodialysis uh, would offer the best survival and the least impact on your daily life. But again, there's the cost of uh, being able to you know, set the machine up, learn how to run. And with the next stage, System 1, it's, it's a fairly simple uh, system to learn. Uh, but that may be, not be the right answer for everybody. Peritoneal dialysis is another way to be able to gain your independence, to be home, to be able to be in charge of your own therapy. But you, you trade one set of circumstances for a different set of circumstances. And I know one modality that's growing is in-center nocturnal where you go in three times a week for eight hours. You know, there's a lot of options that are out there and you have to find them. And then if they're not in your area, take the option to your doctor and say, I wanna try this. Because that's how things change. Because I hear right. frequently from patients, it's not available in my area. Well, it's your job to help it be available by going and asking the questions. With, with the dialysis issue, uh, a lot of people have been stuck on the KTV as the measure of adequacy of 1.2 to 1.4, which is an important measure, uh, but at the same point in time, uh, the frequency and duration is also a very, very important measure that hasn't been given enough importance, I, I believe, here in America yet. And uh, there's other nations that have done very well with the concept of longer, slower, and more gentle dialysis having much better benefits with a lot fewer side effects. And the people aren't complaining of, you know, of having the headaches, of having the nausea, of having the vomiting, of having the cramps, and of having the low blood pressure episodes with longer and gentler dialysis. RSN is very lucky that you participate on our bulletin board called kidneyspace.com. Yes. And uh, would you be willing if any patients, you know, posted a question to answer it? And uh, that would be a good way to keep this dialogue going because I think that it's an important topic and, and it's a difficult topic because people say, like, I don't understand that. But it's your job to find out about it because it's about us living a joyful life. And we can't do that if we don't feel well. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference.